Hey everybody, it's me, Josh, and for this week's Saturday Select Stuff You Should Know, I'm choosing How Silly Putty Works. It originally ran in October 2011, and as I say in this episode, it has it all. It has all six pillars of a great Stuff You Should Know episode. Five, maybe? I don't quite remember. Either way, you'll find out what they are in this thrilling app. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant uh, with me as always. Looking good. I am? Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Um, That makes us Stuff You Should Know. And you are looking good as well, sir. Is that a new shirt? No. Not that new. It's, uh, I don't know, less than... Six months old. Oh, okay. I guess it's kind of new. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the most boring way I could start a show. That was ask you pretty, about your shirt. Pretty high up there. <laughs> Josh is wearing a lovely striped blue uh, button up, as he is wont to do, and I'm wearing a everything's bigger in Texas green T-shirt. Yep. We're both in jeans. I have on my last chance garage hat. Yep. Anything else? I want the, I want to set the scene for once. Um, I've got a beard now. You've had a beard. Yeah. I'm clean shaven. Clean shaven. Yeah, I've started to do the clean shaven thing more than scruffy. I, I was doing scruffy for a while. I know. Are you, which way do you like? Uh, for you? Yeah. I think whatever Yumi likes, which is clearly not scruffy. She likes it both ways. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right. That's, that's, that is the most boring way to ever start a show. Yeah. We should all go to sleep now. I've got a story for you. All right. All right. And you know some of this, so you don't have to pretend like you're surprised. Okay. Back in 1839, there was a man named Charles Goodyear. And Charles Goodyear, whose last name you might recognize for good reason, Mm -hmm. uh, figured out a way to make rubber, natural rubber, tougher than leather. It's called vulcanization. Yes. Okay, so this process of vulcanization took rubber, which is naturally kind of stickier, gooey at warmer temperatures and um, rigid at cooler temperatures and made it much more pliable, much more much more flexible, but able to stand up to really punishing conditions like heat, lots of pressure and force, mm. which made it perfect for car tires, hoses, fan belts. Sure. All of the stuff that we use rubber for today, this guy is the reason we're able to, right? The reason it's tough enough. Yes. Now, the fact that this came in 1839 means that this innovation came during the Industrial Revolution, which means that all that stuff that the rubber could be used for could be mass-produced, which means that we needed a vast source of rubber as the raw material for this vulcanization process. And luckily, I guess you could say at least for the Westerners, uh, we knew where to get vast stores of rubber, the Amazon which is where this uh, very specific type of rubber tree is indigenous and is found in vast supply, right? All right. You with me so far? I am. So we went down on the Amazon, and as a result, these parts of Brazil that were just totally impoverished were suddenly suddenly found themselves at the center of a global rubber boom and just became decadently wealthy, like almost overnight. Brazil and the Amazon was the center of this global trade in in rubber for decades Uh until 1876. These British guys snuck some rubber tree seeds 
out of the Amazon and took them to the um, botanical gardens in London. Okay. And they started to work on forming a hybrid that was even better than the ones in Brazil. A hybrid plant? A hybrid rubber tree All right. that could coincidentally thrive in British colonies in Southeast Asia. Perfect. It was perfect for the British. Yeah. By 1910, the Brazilian stranglehold on the rubber um, trade was being challenged and was in real trouble by countries like Malaysia and Sri Lanka um, and Thailand. And by 1920, the Far East held the basically the monopoly on the rubber market. All right. That's a good background. Thanks. I'm almost done. <laughs> so... About the time that Southeast Asia started to dominate rubber, we needed it even more than when Brazil dominated rubber because cars were being mass-produced, and each of those required four rubber tires, right? So Southeast Asia's hold on rubber was even stronger than than the one that Brazil had. Plus one in the trunk. Yeah, that's right, five. (laughs) Um, And by the time World War II rolled around, we'd come to rely on rubber so much that it was calculated – the um, U.S. military, the Pentagon, needed 32 pounds of rubber for every troop on the ground for things like tires, boots, anything you need rubber for, right? Every soldier. Which makes it a – it was a very, very, very big deal when the Japanese successfully invaded the Pacific Theater, including Malaysia, including Sri Lanka, including all these rubber-producing places, mm-hmm. and cut off the rubber supply to the U.S. And we're like, we need rubber. Yeah. We need it bad. And they were like, well, we've got it. Yes. And by the way, let's go. When you win, there's going to be stragglers on these islands. <laughs> you will one day podcast about them. Hero. So what happened, Chuck? Well, Josh, because the US is industrious and bright and has a never say die attitude. Yeah. They said, you know what? Why don't we commission some uh labs and academic institutions to develop a synthetic rubber? Right. So they put out the call because they needed this for the wartime demand. And uh, all these chemists got to work on it and uh, invented something called GR-S, which is government rubber styrene. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a great replacement for rubber. And by 1944, we were producing twice the amount of all the world's rubber combined. The synthetic rubber? And synthetic rubber in the U.S. Wow. So this is like one of the most... This is one of the biggest chemical chemical engineering accomplishments ever created, ever undertaken, right? That's right. Um, So GRS, huge, still in use today, right? Yeah, as as like the standard for synthetic rubber. Uh Um, It it changed everything. Like that was it. It was like bye bye Malaysia. Sorry about your your rubber monopoly falling apart. You shouldn't have let Japan invade. Well, I'm sure they still had plenty of customers. I'm sure they still do. They weren't like, oh, we got all this rubber. Right. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> we, we, we chose the wrong team. Uh, so this this uh, synthetic rubber, this triumph of chemical engineering was not without setbacks, though. Right? Well, no. Anytime you're trying to synthesize something like that, it's gonna there's going to be some ups and downs. And this was a nationwide challenge by the War Production Board. It wasn't just like, hey, you five guys over here. It was right. like, attention, all chemical engineers, right. all chemists, anybody <laughs> who has anything to do with chemistry. We need a synthetic rubber, and we need it in abundant supply. So uh, there were a lot of people working on this. Oh, yes. And uh, one of those guys was James Wright of General Electric, GE. Mm-hmm. He mixed boric acid with silicon oil. And uh, said, you know what? This is going to be a great synthetic rubber. Unfortunately, 
it wasn't a great synthetic rubber. <laughs> His uh, quote unquote bouncing putty is what he called it. But uh, GE thought it had some promise. GE thought it had some promise, but it did pretty much wallow away in obscurity at first. Right. For um, almost a decade, it just kind of made the rounds to other places like, hey, can your guys do anything like with this? We'll share the patent. Yeah. Whatever. People just like, no. Just figure out what we can do with this. Yeah. And uh, apparently GE got this uh, – it, it was so widespread that it made its way to a party that a guy named uh, Peter Hodgson, who owned an ad agency in New Haven, Connecticut – uh, attended a cocktail party. Remember Spam? That's where Spam came from. Cocktail party on New Year's Eve. Great things happen when you get together and drink. Uh, this guy was at a uh, at a cocktail party and saw some people playing with this um, bouncing putty that James, as James Wright called it, and said, "You know what? These adults seem fascinated by this. I just happen to be working on a catalog for an, a toy store, and I think this would make a great adult novelty." So he approached the lady who owned the Block Toy Store, right? Yeah, and I got – there's varying accounts of this story. I think it's one of those deals where mm-hmm. – because I saw somewhere where she was the one that saw it and contacted him hmm. and said, hey, can you put this in my catalog? So either way, Peter Hodgson and uh, Ruth Fallgatter, who owned the Block Shop Toy Store, yeah, they, they, they decided to put it on the pages of their – their catalog to sell as a toy. Right. And it was uh, $2. Not chump change in 1949. No, that's or definitely so. not. Um, and it was an adult novelty, as they reckoned, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you just say adult novelty and a lot of things come to mind. Okay. Spencer Gifts. I know. I, I know. I'm it wasn't adult. that kind of an adult I'm novelty. worldly. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it was a, an adult uh, diversion. It became a big seller, is what it became. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was the block shop's biggest seller, one of them. Um, and then this, this I found a little hazy. For reasons that remain unclear, did you find anything out about why Fall Goddard stopped no. backing the product? I couldn't find anything on that. But I guess even though it sold big for her, she was just like, eh, whatever. Maybe she just had her thing going and she was like, why do I want to start a new product? Yeah. I'm a toy store owner. Yeah. Why do I want to be a millionaire? Exactly. Money is the root of all evil. Good for her. Take this Good cube, for Mr. Her. Rubik. I have no, no plans for this. Exactly. So, uh, so the whole, the whole, the, uh, the whole drive, the whole push to make this into something big, what we now know as silly putty, fell completely to Hodgson. That is true. And he turned into a whirling dervish. Between 1949 and 1950, he borrowed $147 and bought another batch from GE, mm-hmm. hired a Yale student to roll them into 28-gram, uh, one-ounce balls, yeah. packaged them in plastic Easter eggs, and sold them to Doubleday Bookshops and Neiman Marcus. Along the way, he also um, took them to some chemical engineers in Schenectady, right? Yeah, and said, hey, copy this. <laughs> Reverse engineer it. Yeah. It's like that website that has like all of your favorite recipes from like Applebee's and Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> reverse engineered. Yeah, first get chicken from a sealed bag right. <laughs> that's pre-sauced. Exactly. And put it in a pan. Yes. They're like, do you have Cisco's phone number? <laughs> so that's what he did. And you're right. He did make pretty quick work of it um, because after he opened a manufacturing plant. Yes, all this is in a year. Yeah. He, he first encountered this stuff in he 1949. This is 1950. He believed in this, what would be 
Actually, he's he'd already settled on Silly Putty as the name. Yeah, well, he was an ad agency guy, so sure. he brainstormed some names, evaluated 15 of them, was like, this is the one. Nutty and he Putty. Tra- he trademarked it. Was Nutty Putty one? I think that was one of them, yeah. I think that would have sold, too. So he had the Silly Putty name at this point, opened the manufacturing plant in Connecticut, and soon after that landed Neiman Marcus and Doubleday Bookshops as right. customers, which was huge. It was, it, but it became even huger. When um, some writers from the New Yorker went to Doubleday, yeah, and they encountered. Do you want to read this part? You're, you're I'm not going to read it. Are Take you gonna a read swig it? of scotch and read this one. <laughs> All right. It was in the talk of the town section in 1950 in the New Yorker. Uh, we went into the Doubleday Bookshop at Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street the other day, intending in our innocence to buy a book, and found all the clerks busy selling silly putty, a gooey, pinkish, repellent-looking commodity. The commodity. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That comes in plastic containers the size and shape of eggs. We sought out Mr. Lee Weber, the manager of the bookshop, to ascertain the mysterious link between it and Doubleday. He told us that Silly Putty is the most terrific item and that Doubleday shops have been privileged to handle it since Forever Amber. Yeah. <laughs> Forever Amber, I looked it up. It was a bestseller from the 40s. Uh, okay. It was about a uh, woman in Restoration England, late 17th century England, who, through her sexy wit, Went from rags to riches and became like the favorite mistress of Charles II. Oh. It was banned in Boston. Really? Yeah. So because of this um, pretentious bit of uh, cynical whimsy that appeared in the New Yorker, um, the sales overnight uh, for Silly Putty just exploded. He got uh, Hodgson got um, three hundred no seven hundred and fifty thousand orders. Two hundred fifty. <laughs> Man, why did I? Quarter of a mil. You were probably thinking three quarters. Yeah, I was. I was thinking about the orders that weren't there. <laughs> exactly. He got a quarter of a mil in three days. A quarter of a million orders. And at two bucks a pop, that's a lot of money, especially considering that he only... It's half a million dollars. Yeah. 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 That's... Well, yeah, I was thinking about the half a million he didn't make. Right. <laughs> Uh, so it was like basically an overnight success thanks to Neiman Marcus, Doubleday Books, and The New Yorker. And GE and the Japanese. But I mean, again, this is all happening in a year. That's pretty speedy. This is a whirlwind year for this guy. I'm, I'm happy for him. Just just looking back on this story. I hope he was a good guy and he didn't like beat up little kids on his way to work. <laughs> he passed away in 1976. I hope before then yes. he didn't do bad things. But he saw it become a huge success because uh, by th- when he died in 1976, Silly Putty was in 22 uh, countries plus the United States with sales exceeding $5 million a year. And that was in 76. Yeah, which uh, I looked it up. That's nineteen million today. Really, two thousand ten dollars. Wow, I think Crayola not, owns it now, lot, right? But um, it's it's pretty it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, yeah, they seem to. They seem to. <laughs> yeah. Well, he set up a um, Arnold Clark Inc. And I never found out who Arnold Clark is. Maybe that was an alias of his. Who know. knows? Um, but yeah, oh, Crayola. Yeah, weird. Crayola apparently owns uh, Silly Putty now. Now we've just described the history of Silly Putty. That should be enough. Um, but I mean, 
surely there's no one out there who hasn't played with Silly Putty before. I used to play with it like crazy when I was a kid. And one thing I would do, which is something that they found out, you know, it was originally intended for adults. And they were kind of surprised to learn that kids were into it. Yeah. And it didn't take long for the kids' sales to dwarf that of adults. Yeah, it was 1955 when yeah. kids' <laughs> sales overtook it. Initially, he said... uh He's like, you know, this is great for adults because you can come home and unwind at the end of the day by squeezing it and just blowing off steam by copying newsprint with it. May I? And that's what I did with it was was copied comic books. So in that New Yorker article, they interviewed Hodgson and he had he had a quote. It means five minutes of escape from neurosis. It means not having to worry about Korea or family difficulties. And it appeals to people of superior intellect. The inherent ridiculousness of the material acts as an emotional release to hard-pressed adults. So it obviously worked because we're not in Korea any longer. It's interesting, though, that he was wrong. I think it's funny how somebody can be wrong on something and still be right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like all the uses and the intent, was he was completely wrong. But it still skyrocketed, and he was like, oh, well, well it's yeah. for kids then. He kind of cast a wide net on the patent license. It was sure. for um, stress relief, uh, hand therapy for people who needed it. Um, it could be used to block out low-frequency noises. Yeah, they still claim you can do all this stuff today, like it's good for therapy and for, like, gumming up holes and Cleaning typewriter stuff. keys, yeah, I don't which know is that. a huge use these days. Well, computer keys. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about those. These stuff keys. Um, but, yeah, so the guy was very much focused on it being uh, um, for adults, but kids kind of took it for themselves, mainly because you could – one of the great properties of Silly Putty is you can stretch it out, push it down on uh, newsprint, and you have a mirror image of it. That's what I said. That's what I used to do. Oh, you did say that? Yeah, comics. Comics, yeah. And you can't – it's hard to, It's harder to do that these days because the print they use – like you literally have to find like a, a newspaper in order to do that. Yeah, you can't do it on the internet <laughs> or a magazine. Yeah, you can't do it on a Kindle. You could do it on a magazine. I uh, know. I think you can. No, dude, it's got to pick up the ink. I know. You can't do it on a magazine. I can tell you from <laughs> reading Harper's by the Pool that that stuff smears, and if it smears, I guarantee you can get it on Silly Potty. <laughs> Uh, lucky for him, though, it was non-toxic. So when kids started playing with it and inevitably putting it in their mouth, there were no issues with that. Right. So Hodgson, Although you should not eat it. We should say that. Yeah. Don't eat anything that's not food. Or anything that has the name silly in it. <laughs> or putty. Silly string, silly anything. Um, so uh, Hodgson made mention of its um, inherent ridiculousness of the material, right? Um, it has some really strange properties. Uh, he originally called it, so he, he described it as a solid liquid, right? When you, um, when you stretch it, it's like taffy, it stretches. It's very elastic. If you elastic. stretch it slowly. Right. Uh, if you pull it, it just snaps apart. If, if you pull, pull it quickly. It quickly yeah. and with a lot of force. Um, if you stick it to, like, say, uh, um, bookcase, mm -hmm. you come back a few days later, it will have very slowly moved down. Very slowly. Very. Which means it flows, which is weird, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and when you roll it up into a ball, it bounces 25% higher than rubber. Yeah, they did a test. They, they rolled it into like a perfect little ball and they dropped it with no force from three feet and it bounce, bounces back two and a half feet, supposedly. That is, that is dynamite. Not bad. Yeah. And if you throw it down real hard, you know, you got yourself a super ball in your hands. Right. So what is this stuff? 
What, what are the, the what's the science of silly putty, Chuck? The science of silly well. F- before we get there, can I say about the egg? There are several varying accounts on why it was put in an egg. Oh, yeah. Uh, some people say it was because his first batch went out before Easter, and then he just said, hey, it's actually a pretty good idea. Let's just keep it in the egg. Yeah. Other people say he got the inspiration while eating eggs one morning. Well, eggs are good for you. And still other people say that he couldn't find another container in abundance, and he had like a line on these plastic eggs. And was like, I'll just use this because this is a pretty good way to put it in there. It's about yeah. an ounce, so let's just do that. Yeah. Either way, that became the signature that's still used today. The silly egg. putty full of egg. Comes or, I'm in sorry. An egg. <laughs> the egg full of silly putty. Right. I feel silly. You could probably get <laughs> silly putty full of egg, but you'd have to do it yourself at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. So back to what this stuff is. Yeah. Um, Josh, it is a, a polymer, right? Yeah, it's a um, viscoelastic polymer. Uh, basically, it's subject to the science of fluid chemistry, right? And fluids are not necessarily liquids. Liquids are fluids, but not all fluids are liquids. Gas can be a, a fluid. Some semi-solid substances can be fluid. Uh, basically, a fluid is anything that yields to slight pressure and has no definite shape. Yeah. So, so I'm fluid. <laughs> your your gut is at least okay I'll um so if, so that's uh that's the science that's the part of chemistry and physics that we're looking at is fluid chemistry um and the ruling principle of that of fluid chemistry is viscosity yeah, where, do, where do we talk about this i know we've talked about viscosity we talked about viscosity in um quicksand right sheer Mayonnaise. Viscosity, Josh. Viscosity is, uh, it measures how much a fluid resists flow at a certain temperature. So, so viscosity is resistance to flow. If you're like me and you can never remember what's viscosity, what's viscous or what's high or low viscous, viscosity is resistance to flow. Actually, the easiest way to remember it is water is low. That pretty much says it all. I guess that's easy. Like peanut butter would have a high viscosity, water would have a low viscosity. It's a pretty easy way to remember. Well, it has a high resistance to flow yeah. or a low resistance to flow. Like honey or molasses. And um, viscosity is often measured in Pascal seconds, not so much anymore. Now it's measured by dine seconds per square centimeter, also called poise. And 10 poise equals 1 Pascal second. What that means, <laughs> I cannot, I couldn't wrap my mind around before then. Yeah. Every site that I saw took it for granted that I understood what uh, what that measures. But it measures viscosity or flow as far as I understand. What I love is that someone somewhere said, uh, Pascal seconds just isn't cutting it. Right. A, a guy whose last name was Poise, oh, or Poisel, I believe. Yeah, that's what happened. Came up with Poise. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, how viscosity is measured. Um, and the, the more Pascal seconds or the more Poise... There are uh, the more the uh, higher the viscosity is, um, but the thing about viscous fluids, they all—well, I should say most of them—are subject to um, temperature. That's what affects their viscosity. If you if you have cold honey mm-hmm. that you're trying to get out of the bottle, sure, it doesn't flow very well. But if it's at room temperature or if it's warm, it flows, it's, it's much less viscous, right? It flows much more easily because it's subject just to temperature. Yeah. 
That makes it a Newtonian fluid. That's also a pet peeve. When you go to a place and get pancakes or waffles or French toast and they have the, the heated syrup. Oh, I like that. You do? Yeah. Oh, I like my syrup thick. Okay. Um, you like it thin and watery like that? Yeah. As long as it's warm. It's watery because it's low in viscosity. And it's warm. Um, but that's, but it's just temperature. There ha- it has nothing to do with force or pressure or anything like that. If a fluid is subject to not only temperature, but also force, it's what's called a non-Newtonian fluid, Chuck. the email point? I believe we are, Chuck. This was pretty neato. We got an email from a young listener just a few weeks ago that seemingly had nothing to do with this podcast, but Josh, in his wisdom, looks back and says, hey, this kid actually described this Newtonian fluid very well. Yeah. And so let's just read his description. And it came before we decided to do Silly Putty, so it was all just serendipitous. It was just sitting there. So I'm just going to read the whole email. And this marks the first time that a listener has actually contributed to the body of the show's information. And so this is a – he's a young listener, too, as we'll find out. Dearest Josh, Chuck, and Jerry. And he spelled Jerry's name correctly right out of the gate. It's kids on the ball. Hi, guys. I wanted to say how much I love your podcast and your soothing voices, which get me through long road trips. I may be considered one of your younger, quote, listeners since I am 11 years young. I needed an excuse to email you, so I'll tell you a little bit about non-Newtonian fluids. (laughs) I love this kid. Sir Isaac Newton said that fluids such as water flow continuously regardless of forces that act upon it. So if you put your hand under a faucet, the water still flows no matter what, making it a Newtonian fluid. But non-Newtonian fluids like ketchup, blood, and yogurt behave differently based on the amount of stress added onto it. Try adding cornstarch to water. If you put your hand into it, it behaves like a liquid and allows your hand to go through it. But if you punch it with a lot of force... It behaves like a solid and stops your hand from entering. Cornstarch in water is called oobleck, like the Dr. Seuss book Bartholomew, Bartholomew and the Oobleck. Sorry if that was long, boring, or not entertaining. I don't write articles as well as you guys. Anyway, I love the podcast and keep up the great work. I hope to keep listening to the podcast and that one day we will hear Jerry speak. Together we will find a way. Your podcast confused my friends with amazing knowledge and make me sound like the smartest kid in sixth grade. And for that, I thank you. Your SYSK superfan, Matthew from New York. P.S. What kind of music do you guys like? I like Pink Floyd, Huey Lewis in the News, and Weird Al Yankovic. Awesome. So there's non-Newtonian fluids for you. And dude, when you came to me and said, hey, are you cool with us reading this kid's thing to describe this? I went, yeah, because you know what that means? I don't have to do it. Yeah. He saved me. Yeah, he did. Oh, he saved both of us, buddy. Our favorite little oobleck right. from so New York. Basically, the uh, non-Newtonian fluid, as uh, as Matthew points out, is basically it acts like a solid and a liquid all at once. So he was right way back. Hodgson was way back in the day correct when he said it was a liquid solid or a solid liquid. Exactly. Um, and the reason why is because its main ingredient is polydimethylsiloxane, right? 
And that means that's what gives uh, silly putty its viscoelastic, viscoelastic properties. So it changes depending on long flow time, meaning, say, the force of gravity uh-huh. acting on it down a bookcase, um, and temperatures, right? So at a long flow time, a high temperature, it behaves like a highly viscous fluid. It, it will just kind of slowly flow. Right. But at lower temperatures and when, um, the, when, when it has short flow times, high pressure is applied really quickly, yeah. it'll just break. Which is why you can snap it. I wonder, I guess if you heat it up, does it become liquid? If you heat it up, it becomes radioactive. It's like super happy fun ball. Okay. <laughs> you remember that? No. You don't? The Saturday Night Live commercial for super happy fun ball? It's just like a regular ball, but there were all these warnings. It's like, do not stare directly no. at super happy fun ball. <laughs> if super happy fun ball begins to smoke, run away. <laughs> you got to look it up. I'll find it for you. We Remember we fought for that for the title of our audiobooks was like the super happy fun guide to what you mm-hmm. know happiness or whatever. I think awesome said, was in there somewhere. And they said no. Yeah. Simplified. Um, so that's it. That's the science of, of silly putty. But let's say, Chuck, you don't have much money. You're down on your luck. Yeah. In this economy, it happens. You still want some silly putty. What do you do? You make it, dude. You can very easily make your own. I, I, I don't know right this. Here. You do? Okay. Because I don't have this. I know that there's probably some sort of, uh, Borax involved. There is borax involved, or you can use cornstarch. For this, I'm going to use borax because I think we should support our friends at 20 Mule Team Borax. <laughs> They've been by, doing it for 100-something years. And by the way, kids, uh, even though this is a safe thing, you should always get your parents to help you when you're making stuff like this because you might just make a big mess. Yep. And then they would be mad at us and take away your iPod. That's exactly right. We don't want that. Uh, there was, I was listening to an old episode and there was one about a kid who wrote in and said that we had, um, we gotten his iPod taken away because his teacher, he asked her about alien hand syndrome. Oh, I remember that. And, um, his teacher couldn't answer. So she took his iPod and said it was a, <laughs> a utensil for cheating. And he said, for the record, I never used my iPod as a utensil for cheating. Yeah. He so. basically smoked her. So yeah. She was embarrassed. So um, if you want to go ahead and gather these things, um, there's a white craft glue. Elmer's glue will work. Um, any borax, 20 mule team borax works very well. Uh, some warm water and food coloring if you like. And we'll, we'll wait here while you gather this. Okay. Right. Um, so you want to take your uh, white craft glue. You want one cup of it, 16 ounces, 8 ounces, sorry. Right? Okay. Um, which I think is the standard size of uh, just a regular thing of Elmer's glue. You take your um, three-quarters cup warm water and you make a nice glue-water mixture. And you're going to find that the glue dissolves pretty readily in the warm water, Chuck. Okay. And Which means it has a very low viscosity. That's right. Then you take your borax, just a half of a teaspoon. I've also seen up to a teaspoon. One of those two. All right. Slowly add it. And you're going to find very quickly that the viscosity increases dramatically. Okay. Um, after a little while, you, when you're stirring it, you're eventually going to have to get it to the point where you just pull it out and you rub it together with your hands or whatever. Yeah. And, um, oh, when you add the borax, you also want to add the food coloring too. Sure. If not, you'll just have white silly putty. Um, but you, uh, you roll it around in your hands. There's your silly putty. It's done. And what happened was your, the polymer chains, the molecular chains of water and the glue, weren't sticking. They just slid right past each other, which right. kept them in the Newtonian uh, fluid category. 
But the moment you added that borax, it came in and said, hey, let's all just band together. And it took these polymer chains and linked them so they could no longer slide past one another. They were turned into a, a net or a web. And that's what gives the putty its elastic-like qualities in these long polymer chains that just hook up and hook up and hook up. How long does that stuff last, do you know? I, I, I don't think humanity's been around long enough to know how long silly putty will last. No, I mean homemade silly putty. I don't know. Until your little brother eats it. Because I thought I saw something about putting it in the fridge. So uh, you can need, uh... store it in a resealable bag or container to keep soft. Oh, well, isn't that nice? <laughs> so that's it. And does it does it copy uh, print the same way, I wonder? Or just have the same elastic properties? I don't know. We should I, make some. I don't know. Well, let's do it. All right. Okay. That's, hey, that's what we're doing this weekend. Okay. Me and Josh are <laughs> making big, silly putty. Big weekend. <laughs> I'll bring the aprons. Sweet. I'll bring the beer. So that's it. I, I would say that this um, this podcast was a quintessential um, a Stuff You Should Know podcast. It had a, an iconic American product. It had a lot of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had science, the 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 chemistry behind it, and it had do do it yourself at home recipes. The four tenants. Oh, and a pillars. cute kid, and a cute kid. Five pillars. Five pillars. <laughs> we we nailed this one. And a cocktail party. Six pillars. Awesome. That's it. All right, go get you some silly putty. I know they had. Uh, I think for their anniversary they had gold. Silly Putty for the first time I ever. I believe I remember that. And I think they now have things like Glow in the Dark and, you know, it gets all wacky. It used to just look like, uh, I guess, pinkish, but sort of a fleshy pinkish color. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they still have that too, though, the original. They've got to. Sure. Uh, you can't you can't forget your roots like that. So dads can go to the toy store and say, nah, you're not getting Glow in the Dark. You're getting this. You're getting pink. That's what I had when I was a kid, <laughs> and I loved it. You're going to love it too. Let's get some comics wherever they sell those and- press it against it. They're online. All right. All right. So uh, if you want to learn more about Silly Putty, type in Silly Putty. It brings up a really cool article, um, including a recipe, an extended recipe even. Um, so that's S-I-L-L-Y space P-U-T-T-Y. And in the uh, search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, since I said search bar, that means it's time for listener mail. The second one in this podcast. Indeed. Uh, Josh, I'm going to call this Smart Stuff. From a lady in Columbia, South Carolina. You know, sometimes we just get these listeners that just send us really good intelligent emails, and I think those are always worth reading. Yeah. So here we go. Yes. Uh, hey guys, just finished listening to the Future of the Internet cast. Had a few thoughts about the so-called dumbing down of culture. First, I'm highly skeptical of any claims that uh, to assert a sea change in intellectual ability. Smart and dumb are culturally and historically relative terms. And it's also true that people have been bemoaning the intellectual poverty caused by new technologies ever since writing was invented. Secondly, I'm not actually sure the utilization of deep memory a good is a good one in and of itself. Yes, yeah, something might be lost with those aha moments, but I'm much more impressed by someone's ability to make novel and surprising connections, something that the Internet actually facilitates, than by the pedantic memorization of facts. Okay. Which I would argue isn't pedantic. That's me. Uh, third and most personally, the ability of the Internet to store and offer up vast quantities of information doesn't necessarily wipe out sustained research or thought. I'm finishing up a dissertation that I could have, uh, couldn't have written without Google Books, and that would have taken me a lot longer without Google Scholar. Yeah, sometimes I find myself lost in an indefinitely, I'm sorry, infinitely expanding morass of tabs 
as I disappear down some research rabbit hole. This guy is obviously putting off working on his dissertation by writing this email. It's a lady. Uh, but that's always been the nature of scholarship. You never know where a question will take you and the ability to quickly pursue various strands and to figure out which ones aren't going to take you anywhere productive is, I think, transformative for academia. All of this to say, the Internet might diminish our ability to store quantities of facts, but mourning that ability privileges facts, and quantities of facts are not necessarily indicative of a culture's intelligence. Sustained reasoning and interpretation is, of course, something else entirely. And that is from Josephine R. of Columbia, South Carolina, via Los Angeles. Nice. Wait, Smart does that cookie? So wait, she's I think currently in Colombia. Okay, so from LA. So she's oh, no, no, no. from LA via Colombia. Nope. She's in LA from Colombia. So you were right then. <laughs> Man, how funny this follow-up with smart email like that with dumbery like Dimwittery. this. Dimwittery. Dimwittery. Yeah. All right, well, that's it. Thank you, Josephine, for that. We appreciate it. Uh, that was actually kind of a, a big topic of um, dissent. People writing in about that after that, that yeah. podcast. So thanks. I think she summed it up pretty well. Agreed. Um, also, we should correct ourselves. Cheddar. American cheese? No. English. After the English town of Cheddar. So sorry about that, England. Thanks for taking away one <laughs> of our American cheeses. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of any more corrections right now, but we will figure them out. Yes, we will. If you want to send us a correction, we're always open to that. Uh, you can also send us any cute, silly putty stories that you've got. Um, let us hear them. You can tweet to us, SYSK Podcast. You can um, go on to Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. That's our fan page. Or you can send us an old email at StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 